This entire season of Retronauts is fully funded by listeners like you thanks to Patreon. If you'd like to find out how you can help and get episodes a week in advance, head on over to patreon.com slash retronauts. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of Retronauts Micro. I'm your host, Bob Mackey, and in case you're new to this show or this format, basically Retronauts Micros are for shorter subjects that couldn't fill an entire full-length 90-minute episode, and they're typically hosted by just one of us, and this week, it's me. So to get things started, with any kind of art form, it's not always about who does it first, but sometimes it's about who does it best. And I'm not taking credit for this quote, I'm not sure if it's something I thought up, it probably isn't, but whenever I think of video game history, it's something that always pops into my head. And while I realize the Halloween season has just left us, I do want to talk about horror games once again. Now, plenty of games tried to scare us before this, but largely the game credited for being the most important horror game, or at least one of the first early important horror games, is 1992's Alone in the Dark. While most of what Alone in the Dark did was popularized by Resident Evil, which, to be fair, really ripped it off, Alone in the Dark nevertheless carries those key elements we associate with survival horror. Confusing camera angles, an emphasis on running from enemies rather than fighting them, and a scarcity of resources. At its heart, though, Alone in the Dark was a classic adventure game, and so was Resident Evil for the first two or three installments. Alone in the Dark featured the same puzzle-solving and exploration we'd come to expect from an adventure game, but it also offered direct control over your character and enemies that would stalk you relentlessly, which added a sense of immediacy to the typically slow-paced adventure game format. A few years after Alone in the Dark, and just one year before Resident Evil, another developer would think to mix adventure game mechanics with horror in an altogether different way. Instead of giving you direct control over your character, this series would use a more traditional point-and-click interface paired with a single villain who would follow you and try to murder you throughout the course of the game. And if you somehow didn't look at the title of this podcast before playing it, the series I'm talking about, of course, is Human Entertainment's Clock Tower. So first, a little background information on Clock Tower. The series is the brainchild of designer Hifumi Kono, though Dario Argento's movies Phenomena and Suspiria deserve a hell of a lot of credit, Um, especially Phenomena because if you haven't noticed by looking at Clock Tower, the protagonist Jennifer looks a hell of a lot like Jennifer Connelly to the point where they maybe should have gotten sued just a little bit. And the iconic but awkwardly named series villain Scissorman is mostly stolen from the 1981 summer camp slasher movie The Burning. Now, I've seen this movie, but for some reason I can't remember more than seeing Jason Alexander's bare butt, so if you got a thing for George Costanza, maybe consider renting it. One important thing to know about the series' 1995 Super Famicom debut is that we never got it in America. It came out on Super Famicom, then PC, PlayStation, and Wonderswan, and yet we received no version of this game at all. As for the premise of the first Clock Tower, it's actually astoundingly simple. Playing as the orphan Jennifer Simpson, you and other friends from the orphanage find yourself adopted by a new family, but this living situation quickly turns ugly. As the bodies start piling up, you have to figure out what is happening and hopefully find a way to stop it. In terms of how the first clock tower plays, it's astoundingly simple and actually pretty forward thinking when you're talking about adventure games. 
There aren't any verbs or icons to click on. You simply click around the screen to move Jennifer around, and if something looks like it's worth interacting with, you can click on it, and hopefully Jennifer will do something interesting. Of course, you're doing all this rudimentary adventure gaming while being stalked by Scissorman, so occasionally you'll have to run from him and hide from him when you hear him coming. Thankfully, the dusty Barrows Mansion has plenty of places for Jennifer to hide. But if you come face to face with Scissorman, you have the chance to escape by mashing a button in what feels like a very early form of a QTE, a quick time event. And even though Clock Tower is 20 years old as of this recording, it feels very ahead of its time in certain ways. The sole element of the UI, for example, is a portrait of Jennifer that changes in accordance with her current stamina level. You can definitely tell when she's about to die. The first clock tower is also a pretty short experience. It's about 90 minutes to 2 hours long. And though it wasn't that odd for a game in 1995 to be this short, the reason Clock Tower is so brief is because it's meant to be played and replayed multiple times because this game contains nine different endings. It's interesting to think of how Americans would perceive horror games had Clock Tower been released before Resident Evil 1, but I'm guessing the idea of an experimental 1996 Super Nintendo game didn't strike publishers as the most profitable thing back then. So, fast forward to 1997, and we in America finally get our first Clock Tower game. Uh, it's actually the sequel, but to us, it's just simply Clock Tower. This puts Clock Tower in the same strange situation that the original Metal Gear Solid found itself in. And by that, I mean it was meant to directly follow something that we in America never played. Thankfully, the plot of our first Clock Tower is not nearly as convoluted as anything Hideo Kojima would think up. It takes place shortly after the first game, with Jennifer being the sole survivor of the Clock Tower incident, and surprise, Scissorman is back and he's causing trouble once again. This sequel to Clock Tower is a bit more ambitious than the first game, as it features two unique characters, each with their own distinct endings. And since the gameplay is much more compartmentalized, Scissorman isn't always a threat. Clock Tower for the PlayStation features your standard adventure game gameplay like talking to people, investigating environments, searching for clues, but you're also dropped into distinct scenes in which you have to solve puzzles while avoiding Scissorman, much like the first Clock Tower. And like the first Clock Tower, you're encouraged to play through multiple times to get different endings, but this time the game is a bit more friendly about how to get those endings. Along with these standard adventure game items, you'll also find hints littered about the environment which you can later access from the title screen. As you play through the game multiple times and explore different paths, Paths, you'll hopefully pick up different hints which can lead you to some of the better endings. And since you retain your collection of hints no matter how many times you restart the adventure, Clock Tower turns into a narrative experience that's more about the player's knowledge than the character's knowledge. This is something I absolutely loved in much later adventure games like 999 and Virtue's Last Reward, so I was surprised and delighted to find it in this first Clock Tower game for the PlayStation. And being a mid-90s adventure game, Clock Tower has plenty of terrible voice acting which only lends to its B-movie charm. The evil murderer With a knife? No, it sounds crazy, but it looks like they were killed with a giant pair of scissors. The giant scissors once again search for prey. A trail of terror stretches across Europe, from Norway to England. For as novel as it was, Clock Tower wouldn't be long for this world. 
The series officially wrapped with Clock Tower 3, a Capcom-produced and published title that the original developers had nothing to do with. The good news, though, is that Clock Tower will be back in at least some format soon. Last year, Clock Tower creator Hifumi Kono had a Kickstarter that was fully funded, so we should see the efforts from that pretty soon. And that game is called Project Scissors, or Nightcry, and if you want to read my interview with uh, Mr. Kono, please go to US Gamer. There will be a link on the blog post for this podcast. And since I'm feeling charitable today, I won't make you sit through the typical end-of-podcast promotional stuff that I'm hoping that you never skip. But before I go, I do have one brief request. If you want to see these Clock Tower games in action, and after listening to this podcast, I know for sure you do, please head on over to our Retronauts YouTube account, and you can find it just by simply typing in Retronauts in the YouTube search window. It will come up as Retronauts Podcast. There you'll find complete playthroughs of these games, fully narrated by yours truly. And while you're there, why not subscribe? It's the best way to know when we have new content headed your way. So that's it for me this week. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Retronauts. Have a good one. Appearing a while back. They must be the ghosts of children who were killed here. They started appearing. I wonder how many days we've been trapped down here. Tough. You're just a wimp. Just a wimp. なるほど、こういうことなんだ。ああ。すごいでしょ。簡単にできるのが怖いよ。<笑>